please be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We continue in what is known as Jesus' Upper Room Discourses, uh, those uh, lessons that he was teaching to his disciples between the time of the Last Supper and his arrest, uh, conviction, crucifixion, and his resurrection. Some of the most uh, significant instruction that we have in all of, uh, of the scriptures. The passage before us this morning in, in John chapter 15, uh, some very well-known words and uh, very familiar imagery. Uh, for those of you who are Bible students, uh, sometimes it's referred to as a parable. Technically, it's not because there's, abs- there's really no, uh, no storyline between this. Uh, but Jesus is using uh, a familiar analogy uh, so that he can teach uh, his disciples, including those of us who are gathered here uh, today. Now, just as uh, you're uh, looking, so those of you are still looking, just to let you know, uh, next week we will take, uh, the next two weeks, we'll take a, a, a detour from our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, next week we have uh, Jimmy Block with us, who is the church planter uh, that we are supporting and uh, that is uh, planting a church in Virginia Beach, the Princess Anne area of Virginia Beach. It's an opportunity for us to meet him and to be fed uh, from uh, his ministry. Uh, the week after, when we recognize our students, we have Ben Robertson will be uh, bringing the message, and that is always a, a blessing for all of us. Ben is tremendously gifted uh, with the ministry of the word. And then Camper will bring us back to the next passage in, uh, in a few weeks from now. Uh, and then before the Memorial Day weekend, we'll probably work our way through John 16 before we begin uh, the, the summer months. Now, this morning, our passage, John 15, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the, bran- uh, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we do come to you this hour and give thanks to you for inviting us and gathering us and meeting us in this place. And we come rightly and sing songs of praise of your glory, confessing our need of you, 
and celebrating the grace that you have not only promised but secured through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. As we live, Lord, we are in need of you. We are in need of your guidance. We are in need of your grace. We are in need of your presence, your comfort, and every promise that comes uh, from you. We pray now that as we continue to worship, we would do so by recognizing our need for your wisdom, that your mind would shape our mind, that your ways would become our ways, and that what you love would become what we love. We pray that your word would reveal to us what you are like and what you ask of us, and that your spirit would be at work within our hearts. The word that was spoken by Jesus and recorded by John would bear fruit in the lives of those of us who have gathered here this day. We pray this for your glory, but for the good that you have for us as well. For those two are not separate, but related. Bless us as we behold your glory. Hearing your wisdom, stand in awe of your grace. We pray in Jesus. Amen. We've uh, come to that season of the year, or at least the beginning of the season of the year, where it is not uncommon for many of us in this room and many of the people in this town to spend their Saturday mornings enjoying the sights, the sounds, and the fruits of the farmer's market. It's quite a buzz to go on down there. Whatever it is that you're looking for, it's probably there. If it's uh, fruit, if it's vegetables, if it's art, if it's crafts, if it's soap, if it's a dog, it's probably there somewhere that you're going to be able to enjoy it and so it's one of the most vibrant places in town through all of the time when the weather is good and so I know it started a few weeks ago yesterday at least from my uh, perspective was probably the first time where you know get up and think now this is a day that's that's worthwhile going down to the farmers market but for whatever reason that it might be that draws you down to the farmers market there is one thing that I suspect is undeniable that the goal of the farmer's market, both those who are there as the merchants and those who are there as the uh, patrons, the goal is to enjoy the fruit. It's whether or not it is uh, you who are looking for fruit or for vegetables or artwork or whatever it might be, or the ones who have labored. There might be some joy in planting the seeds and tending the garden or going about their craft. But the end result, the reason things are in market is that they can sell. And the reason that you go if you are looking for something is that you can benefit from the fruit of their labors, the fruit of their hands. Now, in one sense, it uh, becomes a metaphor for all of our lives because we all long to be fruitful in life. It's not just a matter of our spiritual lives or those who are spiritual wanting to be fruitful. Everyone who is living wants in one way or another to have their life be productive and to have impact, to have meaning and for it to have significance. And, and here in John 15, Jesus is calling his disciples and is instructing us as to how we may have significance in the way in the king, not only in the, for the sake of the kingdom, uh, but in this life as God has designed it. And as we look at this passage, what we see is with his very opening words, Jesus sets the cast of characters for us to consider as we think about what it is that he's teaching us. 
Jesus identifies himself and says, I will be in the role of the vine, and God, my Father, will be in the role of the vine dresser or of the gardener, and you, my disciples, you, my followers, you will play the role of the branches in this drama as we, uh, as we think about the principles of living out this life. And his early disciples would have certainly been familiar with this kind of imagery, it would have been something that they had seen many, many times because vineyards and vines were a common part of ancient Mediterranean cultural life. And the vine was also a national symbol for Israel. In fact, God had called Israel to be his, his, his choice vine and often throughout the Old Testament, particularly through Isaiah, uses this metaphor of vine and, and branches and fruit and God speaks of his intimacy and his relationship with his people through this same analogy of, uh, of this viticulture idea, this idea of, 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 uh, of, of fruit that comes from the vine. And yet while it was familiar, it also was probably somewhat confusing for the disciples or at least somewhat uh, disorienting because while they were deeply rooted in their tradition, all of them schooled in the covenant of the Old Testament and all of its imagery. Jesus here is declaring something that is new. In one sense, it might be subtly new, but in others, it would be shockingly new because Jesus is declaring himself to be the vine. And his disciples might have thought about that and as I said, disoriented a little bit because they're oriented toward their tradition that Jesus had come and to affirm and he was teaching in line with that and everything he had taught was an elaboration or a correction of what tradition was teaching there. But the disciples might have thought to themselves or might even push back and say, wait a second, you're saying you're the vine? I thought Israel was the vine. I mean, over and over and over again, the imagery of the Old Testament is that Israel is God's vine and through on that vine, he's going to to bear fruit. Jesus seems to be co-opting a national symbol here. It would have been understandable if some of them felt a little bit, not only confused, but maybe even offended. It would be as if you know, the President of the United States would one day stand up and say, I am the stars and stripe. I mean, can you imagine having a President with that kind of arrogance that would declare himself? I, it's, it's just mind-boggling. And so they might have thought that that's what Jesus was doing. And so we ask the question, what is it that Jesus is doing? And Jesus is using this familiar analogy, and he's also reorienting. He's trying to, not only trying to disorient them, he's reorienting them to understand uh, that Israel is indeed was the vine. And through the vine of Israel, there would be the fruit that was going to be the blessing to the nations. That was the covenant that was made with Abram is that I'm going to gather a people to myself and I'm going to bless these people and these people will, from these people will come the blessing to the nations. And, and while it is a call on all of the followers of, of, of the Lord, all who belong to the Lord, to be a blessing, which is part of the, the great commission that we continue to live out, the ultimate promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It's because through the fruit of that people that God had gathered, off of that vine, off that vine was Jesus Christ himself. He was the ultimate fruit that was born into that lineage. And so Jesus here is declaring himself in one sense to be the fruit of the vine, but he's saying, I was also the whole purpose for the vine. 
The whole reason that Israel was gathered together to be the people of God, well, they're my people. I am part of it because I became like them, but at the same time, I am also the purpose for which they were gathered together. And now we need to understand it's not just a matter of continuing religion as it was or even making some corrections in our religious beliefs and practices that will get us to have the significance and the purpose and the fruitfulness that we desire. It is found in me. I am not just the fruit, but I am the vine. I am the true vine. I'm the one that everything had been pointing to from the very beginning. And as he turns his attention to himself, which his disciples certainly would have understood, but now he's helping them understand in a new dimension of how their lives would bear the significance that God had designed for it. And in these passages, in these verses that we're looking at this morning, we see that God is making three statements. Jesus is making three clear related statements that we'll explore this morning. He says that first, that fruitfulness is not optional. Second, he says abiding is essential. And third, joy is inevitable. So as we begin, let's look first at what Jesus is speaking about fruit. And he's saying that fruitfulness is not optional. In fact, it's indispensable. And he, he speaks as we look in, in verse 2. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or he tends that it might bear more fruit. And, and what Jesus is doing here is he's describing the responsibility of the branches. And again, he had already, as he'll declare here in a, in a moment in, in the verses, but as we already have an understanding, the branches are those who are his followers. Jesus is describing the responsibility of the branches, anyone who is a follower of Christ, to bear fruit in their lives. And it sounds like he's pretty serious about this because think of what he's saying. Any, any branch that is bearing fruit, well, then I'm going to tend that so that it can bear more fruit. And any branch that is not bearing fruit, I will cut it off. And then he describes a little bit later in these verses as to what happens. If there's a branch that is somehow attaching itself or claiming to be part of him, but it's not a part of him because it's, it's, it's not bearing fruit, he says, I will cut it off and it will be thrown in the pile and ultimately it will be thrown into the fire, which is just a discard of, uh, you know, all of the, all of the compost. These are pretty serious things that he is speaking here. And it gives us an idea that he's serious about this fruit. He wants fruit. He will discard and burn anything that is not bearing fruit. And he will cultivate uh, that which is so that he can get more fruit. So inevitably we might be asking the question, well, what kind of fruit is Jesus looking for? And as we look at these passages, we, he's giving us an idea. It's certainly not exhaustive. If you've been around the church for any length of time, not this church in particular, but any evangelical church, the, the idea that might first pop into your mind is that he's looking for fruit of evangelistic labors. Sometimes, both in the scriptures and certainly in the evangelical tradition, we talk about those who have become believers through the labors and the ministries of the church or of Christians as bearing, being fruit. And those who are the most effective evangelists, we refer to as those who have borne fruit or are great fruit bearers. And, and I don't want to in any way minimize that, or, but Jesus doesn't talk about that here in this particular passage. What Jesus has in mind here is 
much more specific and it's much more personal because what he seems to have in mind here are the personal characteristics of inward graces, the character of Christ that is beginning to manifest itself in the lives of believers, things that Paul would later write about and talk about being the, the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and, and the characteristics that are a checklist, an item of that, that we would be able to recognize in the person of Jesus and through Jesus we are able to see about our God. And we know that that's not something that's new. If you were to go back and look at Isaiah 5, we see that God is speaking about his own vine and his own branches. Again, he uses that analogy. And he talks about the, the vine that he had planted and that he was expecting fruit and he tended it. He planted, he tended it, he, he, and, and then when it was time to get the fruit, all it had was you know, sour grapes, bitter fruit, wild, wild, uh, wild grapes. And then he speaks of, so, because it didn't bear the fruit that he wanted, he would, how he would relate to it and the judgment that would be on it. God has always expected his people to bear fruit. And, and in Isaiah 5, he said, here's what I expected. I expected them to share my heart for justice and my heart for mercy and, and compassion for the people that are around them. There are inner traits, characteristics that have outward manifestations here. And Jesus is teaching us by implication then the importance of self-examination. We would look at our own lives and ask ourselves if we are bearing fruit, the, the fruit that is consistent with the the character of Christ. Now, that's not unrelated to bearing fruit from an evangelistic standpoint, because it's that character invested in a particular community and in relationships uh, that reveals Christ to the people who are around us, that makes them explore, see their own. But in particular here, he's focused specifically on those who are his followers, and is the character of Christ being born out in your life? Is it being evident? He's, he's focusing on the character, not the labor. And in one sense, it's an even stiffer test and then if it was a matter of the uh, productivity that we might think about, that might come through our, our busyness and through benevolence, because those are things that can be, um, it can be easily done even without being connected with Christ. Those things are done by non-believers all the time. They're busy and they do good things for people, or they have invested themselves in having both opportunity and aptitude, have been able to be prosperous, and then they are generous with their resources. It's one of the reasons why it's vitally important that Christians and Christian leaders be very clear as to what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, so that we understand what God is expecting and the kind of fruits. It's one of the reasons why, at least me personally, I was, I was shocked and still very disappointed in, in some of the uh, supposed spiritual leaders in our country. First one comes to mind is Jerry Falwell Jr., who labeled Donald Trump to be a Christian on the basis of his benevolence. And my point here this morning is not to discuss or to determine whether Donald Trump is or isn't a Christian. The issue is whether he is or he isn't. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether he gave them money at Liberty University or anybody else money. See, that would be easy to do. The issue is, are the inner characteristics of Christ being born out in the lives of those who claim to be the followers of Christ. And Jesus here is saying that's the fruit that he is looking for. And if that is true, then he says that 
he was going to continue to be at work within you and he's going to cultivate that. And if it is not true, he says for anyone that's not true, he cuts that off and it will be discarded. Now, that's not to say that if you know somebody who is not bearing fruit right now or not professing faith in the end, that there's no opportunity there for them to be saved. It's a different metaphor entirely. But it is a challenge and a call for us not to just look at the fact that we might have engaged in mission trip and taught Sunday school or memorized the catechism or given a certain amount of money toward mission or evangelism or some social justice cause and then determine, therefore, God must be pleased. What he's speaking about here is very clearly, are we seeing the characteristic of Christ more and more evident in our lives and the people around us, people who know us best, seeing that as well? Jesus is very serious and he's saying fruitfulness is not optional. So how do we get that kind of fruit? Where does it come from? How do we cultivate that? If we may see buds in our lives or we see great fruit and we know that more is needed, where is that fruit going to come from? Buckle up and try harder. In fact, Jesus says it's quite different, almost the exact opposite. See, while we recognize, first of all, that bearing fruit or fruitfulness is not optional, Jesus tells us second, and maybe most significantly in this text, that abiding is essential. Jesus says to us in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. In other words, there is an organic, dynamic connection that happens by faith. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. All right, so we know here by what Jesus is saying is essential if we're going to bear fruit that we must abide in him and allow him to abide in us. We got that? Except, quite frankly, other than when I sing old hymns, the word abide is not something that's in my vocabulary very often. So some of us might want to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean when he's saying that we need to abide? What is it to abide? Very generally speaking, it is to abide is to remain in something or it is to rest in something. If we were to take the literal translation of the Greek of the word and, and the context of it, what Jesus is saying here is that it is to find our home in Christ. In other words, that we don't just visit once in a while, but we live there, we are rooted there, we are connected there. That's where we find our everything. And Jesus is saying that when that's the case, when we are dynamically connected to him, when we find our home in Christ, where that is our root and that is our base, that's when we are able to bear fruit. When we understand that concept of abiding, even if in some ways it, it can be a, a, a little bit confusing to us when we think about it, Jesus gives us a clue about the significance of being connected to him by faith, not doing things for him, but being connected to him when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. In one sense, it is a very confusing statement because we can do all sorts of things apart from Jesus. You ever seen me play golf? You know, quite frankly, I'm playing apart from Jesus, although you might realize I am in desperate need of him. 
Um, we can do whatever work we do, apart from Jesus, many people do it. We can parent apart from Jesus. You can pastor a church apart from Jesus. Just put your nose to the grindstone, follow certain principles, do what people want. You can do anything uh, in one sense apart from Jesus. So what is it Jesus is saying here? He's saying what you cannot do is you cannot bear fruit. You cannot grow spiritual. You cannot be what you are to be. You, God, it's not that God is at work within you. And he says just as a branch can do nothing, you know, it can't even survive if it is not connected to the vine. So you can't bear any spiritual fruit. You can't bear significance. You might look like that. You can be like a Christmas tree that has uh, ornaments draped on it, uh, a little apples, fruits, and whatever you might put on your tree, but it is not the same as the organic reality. It's not authentic. And Jesus is saying, you must be connected. You must abide in me. This text came came vividly clear to me as I was working in our yard not too long ago. We live in the woods and so we are blessed with leaves. I mow leaves more often than I mow the in the fall and the spring, more often than I mow the grass in the summertime. And so I also have a leaf blower that's plugged in and is connected to uh, a couple of cords. Um, I finally got a 100-foot cord that enables me to do most of our yard. Uh, but I plug that into another one to get to the far reaches of our yard to blow the leaves into the woods that are around us. And every once in a while when I'm walking around and blowing the leaves and, you know, making some progress, minding my own business, things seem to be going well, boom, the thing goes off. And I look and, you know, all right, well, I'm still plugged in here. And I realize that somewhere the blower has become disconnected from the cord that is connecting it to the power. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And, and now, some of you have other lawn tools, and I have other lawn tools as well that are battery. And they work well, but every once in a while there's a storage of battery, and they can work for a time. But if they are not connected to the cord, they will inevitably run out of juice and not be able to continue to produce. And, there, and those are great illustrations of the way that we live our lives. Jesus is saying that in a very vivid sense, you can't do anything. It's more like the, we're like the leaf blower that once it becomes disconnected, you're doing nothing. Some of us have lived our Christian lives more often, more like those things that have the battery, and we've done a whole lot disconnected from that, but we just are not aware. And it's only when we run out of juice, when we burn out, when we feel that we're going to die, that we turn back and we get plugged back in. It's because we're running on our own power. Jesus is saying that for us to bear the fruit, to be what we are called to be, we must constantly be connected to him. We must have faith, and that faith is not just the entry. It is the ongoing connection that we have. And Jesus says, unless you have that ongoing connection, you can't do anything. But you see, my problem is this. Maybe it's your problem too. I don't believe that. Oh, I'm not saying that Jesus is wrong. I, I know without a doubt that he's correct. But if you look at my life, you look at my calendar sometimes, 
becomes quite evident that I that I don't believe it. That I go and function way too often and for far too long as if Jesus empowered me and that the Christian life is just to be lived until I am spent. Even we understand that we are to abide and abide comes through faith, how is it that we cultivate that? How is it, I mean, Jesus is saying this is something we are to do. We are to intentionally, there, there is something that we do. We are intentionally resting, making our home as we're believing in him. And there are things that we are to be doing in our lives that enable us to, to do what he's calling us to do. And, and in these passages, Jesus gives us some indications that there are things that we, we ought to be doing. Uh, one is, I think, that he's telling us as part of that is that we pray. We have a, a, a very um, popular, misunderstood, and widely abused verse here uh, that some of you may have recognized that I skipped conveniently over entirely when Jesus said it in last week's text. You know, pray and ask me anything and I'll do it in my name and I'll do it. And I'm going to skip over it again. Um, not because it's not important. And not entirely because I'm a coward and don't want to deal with it. That's not, that might be part of it. But it's because it is such a significant and so misunderstood that it really warrants a message in itself. But for the context, and the context is important here. It's not like Jesus was making that the highlight of what he was teaching. That was kind of like a throwaway truth, a throwaway line that he is speaking about something that is greater. He's talking about abiding in him so that we are able to bear fruit. And he's saying part of the way that happens is through communication. The way we stay connected with Jesus is that we pray. And he's telling us that there's not anything that we can't pray. We can ask him anything. We can go to him about anything. It's just the prayer is the communication aspect of a loving relationship and Jesus is saying if you want to stay connected if you want to abide well then prayer communication is vital it's as vital to our spiritual life as it is to any marriage if you are communicating you are connected if you're not communicating you are disconnected and prayer is an indispensable aspect of of being in a dynamic organic connection with Jesus Christ. We see another hint of it in saying that when we are in the word, whether it's through our devotional time or studying it together or in a small group, wherever it is that we're studying the word, because Jesus makes uh, reference to the word in verse, in verse 3, I, I've spoken to you. And so there's something that is happening there uh, that Jesus is speaking when he is speaking to us and we are hearing him something is happening. And so when we're studying it, going back to the Eugene Peterson quote that I mentioned last week, is that by God's Holy Spirit, he enables our eyes to be turned into ears. It's a beautiful picture of saying that, yeah, when we are reading, people who say, well, it's a book and you're reading words on a page, we are doing that. And yet, over and over in the scripture, we are told that this is God's word. God has spoken it. He has breathed it out. And as we are reading it, we are hearing the voice of God. So our eyes become ears. And that, hearing the voice of God, is part of the communication aspect. See, when we pray, we are speaking to God. Now, we can also listen. And the Spirit does speak to us, but he always speaks in accordance with his word. So it's also sometimes good for us to stop and just listen to what God says. That's the communication aspect. And he speaks to us by his Spirit, through his word, who inspired the word to begin with. 
And so those are pretty obvious ways in which we are to uh, be able to abide and that we stay dynamically connected. But Jesus says another one here uh, that is perhaps surprising. It is in some ways complex, uh, but it is vitally important, especially since Jesus says this is the only one of these that he very specifically lists here. He's saying our obedience, that we are able to abide in him when we stay in obedience to him. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. And he speaks of obedience and the importance of obedience in, in command. Now, the only way we know what Jesus' command is if we are in the word in the first place, and so therefore we're listening. But it's not a matter of just listening and saying, well, that sometimes happens in our house. At least my wife points this out. or She's under the impression that our house is sometimes she says things and I say, uh-huh, and then things don't get done. I don't remember those things, but that's, uh, but that's what she says. She's not here, I don't think, in the first service, so that's my story, and I'm sticking with it right now. So, But being doers connects us in a way that being mere hearers does not. And it's important that we understand that we don't fall to this whole idea that sometimes has permeated certain evangelical churches and traditions that says, well, I'm under grace, not under the law, so therefore I don't need to do anything. We are disregarding the instructions of the living and true God if we think that there's nothing that we are to do. Obedience is vitally important for our dynamic connection. The whole idea of the Great Commission when Jesus sends his disciples out is to go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. If the idea of obedience was not part of the Christian life, apparently nobody told Jesus. It's not just so that he can get people that are doing the same thing, but Jesus is saying that it's in that understanding and then obeying that we are abiding, and it's in abiding that we are able to be connected, and by being connected, we're able to bear fruit. So it's not just a matter of a bunch of rules do these things. It is the power of God working through us when we are connected, and Jesus is laying it here. But even as we understand that, it's vitally important that we understand uh, the uh, uh, Bible scholar D.A. Carson I think rightly warns us, and he says this, we must be exercise particular care in observing what this text does not say. Jesus does not suggest that our obedience somehow earns his love, nor that his love is so sullen and miserly that it must be wrenched from him by a kind of moral bribery. So we need to understand that he's speaking to us and saying, look, if we want to stay connected, obedience is vitally important. It cannot be ignored. It is indispensable. But we need to also understand that he is not saying here that God, Jesus loves us and God the Father loves us only if we obey and do what it is that he's saying, as if you know, we somehow have to earn that from him or squeeze that out so that we put him into our debt. To misunderstand that is to misunderstand the difference between roots and fruits or causes and consequences. And something that we need to see here, and I don't know that I'd seen it until I was studying it in the past couple of weeks, is, is evident of a principle that you hear me and Camper and others say regularly in this church, is that grace always precedes duty. Or if you use it from the English uh, standpoint, that the 
the imperatives always follow the indicatives. In other words, who you are in Christ, what God has done, grace always precedes that. And here we see Jesus talking about the importance of obedience in order for us to remain in abiding. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So he's not talking to people who say, look, if you obey, I'll love you, and then you'll get what you want. He's saying, look, I'm talking to people because, and what's the word that Jesus has been speaking to them? Well, I mean, obviously he's dealing with the total of his ministry, but particularly all through the time that he was teaching them, but really intensified in these last couple of weeks and now in these last few hours as he keeps saying over and over again, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die. Is the sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement, that is central to the faith that what we believe and it is believing what Jesus is teaching about himself and these people believed it and didn't have a clue at the same time I mean they're only minutes away from Jesus being arrested hours away from him being crucified dying days away from him rising again and he's saying you're already clean it, it, it's a reminder to us over and over again that it is not the quality of our faith it's not the, you know the depth I've reached a certain theological depth now I, it's it's about God's grace. And he says, you're already clean. I've spoken and you've believed. You're following. You're still with me. And so you've already been washed. He may be making some reference back to a few hours ago when uh, he had washed his disciples and taught them that they are in need of him all. But whatever the imagery that's coming to mind here, it's, it's very clear that grace has already proceeded. And one of the ways in which we are able to respond to that grace is through obedience. And through obedience, as Jesus said last week, if you obey, keep my commands, that's how you tell me that you love me. But he also says something here that is unnerving and, and somewhat uncomfortable for us. But it's important that we understand. And it is connected to our obedience because it's our choice to endure. In, in a sense, we, I'll elaborate what I mean by our choice in a moment. We choose to endure, which is an act of obedience, or we begrudgingly experience pain and suffering in this life. One of them has benefit, and the other one just feels harsh. We can't ignore what Jesus says early on. Every branch that is producing fruit gets pruned. It's not the way that we would probably write out our religion. It's certainly not the way that I would choose to live out my life. It doesn't really make sense. Because he's saying here, it's the best branches who get the knife. It's those who are showing the most promise and the most productivity already who are going to experience pain. It seems so cruel. It seems so wasteful in a sense, except that we understand it in other aspects of our lives. It is only the best and the brightest who get pushed the most by teachers and coaches. Coached high school football and the only ones that the coaches got really hard on were the players who were the most gifted. Otherwise it's just cruel. Teachers and professors only really push the brightest, not the kids who are just struggling to read. Otherwise, that would be just cruel. 
but teachers, professors, coaches, and, and probably every other sphere of life, they understand in order to get the best out of people who show promise, you push and you challenge and you make them uncomfortable. There's also affirmation and other things, and Jesus is not saying that's not part of this process. But we, we understand that in other aspects of life, but we tend to think that in our lives, that if we relate to God, that we're operating in a totally different principle, and so that if I do the right things, and if I have some good things going on in my life, God ought to leave me alone, right? Jesus says here, no, 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 no. Those who have fruit, I will prune. I'll go under the, I'll go under the knife. It's the way that God works. Now, it's important we understand, as I said, is we can endure that begrudgingly, or we can endure that not delightfully, but willingly. can't remember who was, was a, let me rephrase, I was going to say a middle-aged mystic, but that kind of gives the whole wrong, it was a, it was a female mystic from the Middle Ages um, that, um, and I, Madame, so I can't remember, some French lady who made this observation, it is never in the suffering that fruit is born, but in our response to the suffering. And that's a distinction to be made, because I hear over and over, and I'd probably be guilty of saying it, is, you know, the suffering is going to bear fruit. Now, sometimes it's true, because God's grace supersedes, but we abide by willingly enduring and going through pain, because it is God's pruning. Now, we need to understand sometimes in life, we are being pruned because there's sin that needs to be pruned off. Sometimes we go through pruning simply because it's the fruit of lives. And I know that in this church there are a number of people that are experiencing different kinds and, and intense suffering, and it's vitally important that you understand that that is true. The question that we have is, how do we know the difference? And it goes back to what Jesus is saying here. The fact that both things are true, that God will prune off the sin of our lives so that we are not encumbered by that anymore, or he will prune that which is bearing fruit so that it can make more fruit, and, and we don't know why we're experiencing the hardships and difficulties, which may come through criticism or circumstances, is that we, we have to realize that we can never evaluate God's favor or thought of us on the basis of our circumstances. But always back to, what is my hope? What is my trust? What is my delight? Am I abiding in Christ? Is that my hope? And if that's the case, we know that God is faithful to his covenant and that the experiences that are hard and painful in our lives are not punishment, but his way of perfecting us. It's the way that the Lord works. John Newton understood this. Great hymn writer, former slave trader who through his conversion and became a prolific um, hymn writer and minister uh, in England in a poem that he wrote that has also become a, a beautiful and haunting hymn called I Ask the Lord. Here's what Newton says. Just follow the flow of his poem. And I've asked Isaiah to introduce uh, the hymn uh, sometime this summer. Put yourself into this poem as, as Newton speaks. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request 
and by his constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set me free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. See, the, the pruning process is not punishment. It is the way God works. It's not our way, but it's the way God works. And if you're experiencing suffering, it is not an issue of punishment. If you are abiding in Christ, no one looks forward to the knife. But pruning is always good. We have seen that fruitfulness is not optional. Abiding is essential. But there is a purpose that is beyond here that Jesus refers to in verses 11, but even leading up to it. And it's important that we understand and see all of this through this lens, and I won't go into great detail about it, but joy is inevitable. So what he says in, in verse 11 here, verse, I'll start with verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you. In other words, everything he's just said, that my joy, Christ's joy might be in you, and that you will have complete joy your joy will be made complete. So we need to understand that God is doing all of this not just for his own glory, but for our joy, and those two things have reacted. And we need to recognize that joy is the reason that we do everything. Everything that we do, we do for joy. We invest, we sacrifice, sometimes we even punish ourselves because we think in the end it will produce more joy. The idea of pursuing joy itself is not a sin. If it was, then it would be inappropriate for God to lay the hope of joy out in front of us as a carrot that we are to pursue. The issue is not whether we should or can pursue joy. We do, and that is itself not a problem. The question is, what do we pursue in order to get joy? C.S. Lewis, I think, wonderfully expressed this about our condition when he says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, our desire for joy, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. And the reality is, as Jesus is saying, look, there is joy, enjoyment that comes from the fruit that comes only when we abide. 
There's nothing wrong with pursuing joy. If you want ultimate joy, it is found in abiding and allowing God to produce fruit in your lives. The challenge for us is that we are too easily satisfied and we too easily compromise and we pursue things that bring us pleasure in some limited way. Sometimes it's benign. Sometimes there's a price to pay at the end. But in pursuing those things, we forsake the opportunity to experience fullness of joy, which is what Jesus is promising, which comes when he's at work within us. Jesus says it. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. And you will have joy complete. May we know ourselves by God's grace and pursue it. Father, bless us with an ability to see ourselves in light of your word and your spirit. Enlighten us as to what we may be pursuing, that we may choose to pursue what is far superior, which is ultimate joy, which is found in you and in you alone. Shape us, we pray, although maybe somewhat frightened. Shape us nevertheless, that we, your people, might find our fullness of joy Because as we pray, we know that it is found in you and from you alone. To you be all glory in your church and around the world, we pray. Amen. Please stand.